In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. Now, the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near. About the middle of the festival, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. On the last day of the festival, the great day, while Jesus was standing there, he cried out, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, the scripture has said, Out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, which believers in him were later to receive. Upon that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Again Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. When the day of the Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time to come together. And Lord, I pray right now that you pour your spirit into this lesson. Help me speak the words that you want us to hear. And if anything is said that you don't want us to hear, please let those words just fly in one ear and out the other. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being everything for us. It's in your sin name we pray. Amen. I have a confession before we begin. I don't really like Thanksgiving food. I, I like Thanksgiving as a holiday. I like getting to come and see the family. But the menu, I think almost any meat is better than turkey. No matter how hard you work on a turkey, it's still not as good as any other meat. right? I, I don't care for dressing. I don't care for stuffing. I don't know the difference because I don't eat it anyway. I, I definitely don't like cranberry sauce. Just give me some apple sauce or something else. Pumpkin pie is tasty, but I'd rather just have more ice cream, please. You know, I, I don't, I'm not big on Thanksgiving food, but even though I don't really like Thanksgiving food, I know the traditions of Thanksgiving. I grew up in your stereotypical American nuclear family. I know about the traditional foods. I know the historical stories about pilgrims and Indians. I know when Abraham Lincoln instituted Thanksgiving. I know that the Dallas Cowboys play on Thanksgiving and normally win. I know that the Detroit Lions play on Thanksgiving and normally lose. I, I understand Thanksgiving traditions. We, we started a series last week called Redeeming the Holidays. And for these three weeks, we're looking not primarily at our holidays, but at the Jewish holidays uh, in the first century, because Jesus interacts with those holidays in a particular way, in a way that takes what was going on and puts Jesus at the center, takes what had been done for years, for centuries, and reframes it about himself. Last week, we talked about the Passover, how Jesus took the bread, took the wine, and said, this is my body, this is my blood, like we just did. He, uh, how Jesus became the sacrificial lamb that allowed God to pass over us and avoid his judgment and wrath on us. For those who accept Jesus as their Savior, this week 
we're looking at the Festival of Tabernacles. So it's also been called the Festival of Booths. A different word that might be easier is tents. And these, the, the word tabernacle, the word booth, is describing a type of temporary dwelling. So a tent is probably the easiest way, but not necessarily a durable one. The Festival of Tabernacles was a huge event in the first century. It was one of the three festivals where the Israelites were invited or even urged or called to come to Jerusalem to celebrate. It was a national holiday, and it was a big holiday. It lasted for seven days, a seven-day party. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if everyone in the U.S. stopped everything, traveled to Washington, D.C., and had a national party for seven days? That'd be crazy. And the reason it was called the Festival of Tabernacles, or booths, is because to celebrate, you ate your meals and sometimes even slept in these makeshift tents. Can we go back a slide? Those tents right there. So you have this massive celebration, a seven-day party, and you eat and you even sleep like you're camping. So if you enjoy camping, this is the festival for you to participate in. Uh, you could say that this festival was so big it was intense. Don't worry, Mitch is coming back next week. <laughs> and the reason they set up these tabernacles, these tents, I worked a long time on that one, was so that the Israelites would remember their history. When God pulled his people out of Egypt, they first lived in just these, we got to get out of here quick, we've got to set up something to spend in for the night, these kinds of tents. And over time, as they began to travel in the wilderness, they set up more durable kinds of tents, stuff that they could take down and set up each day. But to begin with, this is what they used. And so for seven days, they would remember their journey and how God had provided for them and given them an escape out of Egypt. The other reason that they did this, it was a dual purpose, was that this holiday was also combined with the harvest festival, the festival of ingathering. And so during the harvest, you would hire extra workers to help harvest your fields, especially if you had a, a bumper crop, right? And so these extra workers you wouldn't have rooms for, you would set up these makeshift tents for them to stay in and live in when they weren't working. It's a temporary dwelling, but it's made necessary because God had given his people a bountiful harvest. So by staying in these tents, they would remember their heritage, their history, and they would also remember their immediate blessings. And they would rejoice and give thanks. Right? This was the Jewish equivalent of Thanksgiving with a little bit of 4th of July mixed in. That's what we're talking about. And if we only had the Old Testament to learn about the Festival of Tabernacles, that's all we would know. But over time, the Jews added additional traditions. As you know, different things get added over time to holidays. Some are good, and some are like the elf on the shelf. Over time, the, the Jews had added additional <laughs> traditions to this festival. And those traditions are described in other Jewish documents. A lot of what we know about the Festival of Tabernacles is from one document called the Mishnah. Uh, and one tradition was the drawing of water. So, each day a priest would take one of the pitchers from the temple, and he would go outside of the temple, he would go down to the Pool of Siloam, and this is the pool where Jesus put mud on the blind man's eyes and told him to go wash, and so he washed in the pool and then he was able to see this is the same pool. They would go and they would draw water from this pool and they would carry it back to the temple. And this 
wasn't just a small errand. This was a parade. This was a procession. They had dancers. They had musicians. They had trumpeters that as the uh, priest came to certain steps in the temple, they would stop and just blow the horns. All right? So he would come, and he would come to the altar, and he would pour out the water at the altar. Don't worry, there's a pool here. And you think, why, why bother doing this? But this was a huge festival. This was a huge moment in the festival. This was the biggest moment for a lot of people when they came to the festival. The Mishnah says that if you never saw this parade, this happening, you don't know what rejoicing looks like. And we think there were two ideas here. One was that water in the Pool of Siloam was one of the original water sources for Jerusalem. So when David captures the city, when Israel creates Jerusalem as the capital city, it was a sign that God had provided for them, that they had truly arrived as God's people, as God's kingdom in God's promised land. The other is that in the Exodus, on their journey to the promised land, twice God provided water from a rock. No other way to explain it. God had to provide it so that the Israelites wouldn't die of thirst. And so it's at this moment when the priest is pouring the water out at the altar that Jesus probably says these words, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. He's not mincing words. What he just says at the moment we think he says it is that he, Jesus, is the source of living water. God provided water in the desert, and now Jesus is providing living water. Jesus is claiming the authority of God in this moment. And immediately people start talking. They, some people think he's a prophet. Some people think he's the Messiah. Others want to arrest him. Because how could a man from Podunk, Galilee, read it how it says it in the Bible, how could a man from Galilee be the Messiah? The temple police, police were told to arrest Jesus, and they come back to the, the religious leaders and they say, there's no way we're arresting this guy. The way he speaks is above our pay grade. We're too nervous to do anything. Even the religious leaders debate, if you keep reading, how can Jesus be actually as important as he's claiming to be? And Jesus isn't done. There's another thing about this festival that you need to know, and that because this festival was so important to Israelites, one of the things they would do is set up huge jars of oil around the temple on scaffolding, uh, inside this court of the temple. This court area didn't have a roof, and so they would raise these above the temple walls. Uh, these are the best renditions I could find, but I don't think they quite illustrate it correctly. But they would set these up, and remember back then, obviously, they didn't have electric lights, but they also didn't have candles on a regular basis the way we think of lights, like, oh, go light the candle. They had oil lamps, oil kerosene lamps, and so these were massive oil lamps. They were so big, it says, the priests would take their old clothes, wind them together, and use those, the old pants or the old robes as wicks for these candles. That's how big these lamps were. The, these lamps were so big, so bright, the Mishnah says, you could see all night, every courtyard was lit from the light of these lamps. Can you imagine? And it's at that point that Jesus then says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, 
not even at night, but will have the light of life. In the first century, light was a symbol of the presence of God. During the Exodus, God led his people as a column of fire, as a column of light to guide their paths. And now Jesus again is claiming that role for himself. Jesus has now claimed that he is the source of life, because water is so essential to life. He's claiming he's the source of light for the world. We included in this reading at the beginning, but remember when Jesus is talking about being the source of living water, he's talking about being the source of the Holy Spirit, as the one who sends the Spirit. And when the Spirit appears, do you remember how that appearance is described at Pentecost? As tongues of fire, as light. Jesus is the source of life, and he's the source of light. And that's not a small claim. This moment, the way Jesus does it, would probably be like him appearing at the presidential inauguration, getting up on stage and saying, by the way, I am the King of Kings. It'd be like him appearing at the national celebration for the 4th of July and saying, taking the mic and saying, if you truly want to be free, then come and follow me. Jesus is claiming authority that has only ever belonged to God, and he's doing it at the center of the capital, at the center of the celebration, at the center of everything that's going on. Jesus has taken one of the biggest holidays of the Jewish calendar and made it all about him. So what does this mean for us? Why did we even spend time learning about this history? It's interesting, sure, so if you like history, that, that, that you enjoyed it. But we already knew that Jesus was the light of the world. We already knew that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. So why this backstory? One reason is that John's original audience knew the backstory. We're pretty sure that John's gospel was written originally, the original audience was a group of Jewish Christians, Christians who were Jews first and then converted to Christianity, who had been driven out of their Jewish community. And so they had been disowned because of their belief in Jesus. They, when all of the Jewish holidays happen every year, when they look on the calendar and they know the next Jewish holiday is coming up, they know that they can't go rejoin their Jewish friends and family to celebrate. No matter where they lived, these Jewish Christians couldn't celebrate with the rest of the Jewish nation. Imagine your parents saying, and maybe some of you have experienced this, if you become a Christian, you can never come home, not even for the holidays. Every holiday you wonder, did I make the right choice? And so John's gospel, not just in this passage, but throughout the gospel, he points out again and again that Jesus was the right choice. Jesus, throughout John, is constantly harassed and challenged by the Jewish leaders. Not everyone, but the Jewish leaders. Even though Jesus himself was Jewish, Jesus celebrated the Jewish holidays. Jesus followed the Jewish laws. The leader of the Jews rejected him. They kill him. Jesus claims authority. And the Jewish leaders do everything they can to get rid of him, just as they did with the first readers of John's gospel. No family reunions, no worshiping together with the people you grew up with. And the only way that would all be worth it, the only reason is if you were following the one, the only one who could give you life. 
who can offer light in the darkness, who can heal the blind man, who can help us see past our blindness in our lives. The good news today is that Jesus is enough, even if you lose everything else. The good news is that our God loved us enough to offer us life, to offer us light in spite of our darkness. Every time we worry about suffering because of Christ, we have to remember that our God is the only God in the history of religions who was willing to die for his creation, who was willing to die for his children. He was willing to suffer for us, and he's enough even when we suffer. And John makes this obvious even from the beginning of his gospel. He describes Jesus as the word of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. A better translation of that word dwelling, making his dwelling among us, might be camping, setting up his tent, setting up his tabernacle among us. God became human. God suffered with humankind so that we could be reunited with God. Last week, Mitch talked about redeeming Halloween, and he, no matter how that holiday or those traditions started, he and his family use it as an opportunity to share with their neighbors God's love, to show them what godly love looks like, to help them slow down. And this week, as you celebrate Thanksgiving, I want to encourage you to make God a central part of your celebration. I, I don't, how you do that is up to you. One option we thought of is if you were working on those thousand blessings that we introduced last month, you could take those, even if you haven't got a thousand, maybe you've only got 200 or 500 or 100, you take those and at the end of your meal, you just read all of the blessings and remind yourself all of the things you found a reason to be thankful for. My family growing up, started a tradition where during the meal we would take turns going around and thinking of things to be thankful for. One way we're making God central as a church family is the meal that we serve to Sherman ISD families on Friday and the meal that we're serving to the shut-ins on Monday. But whatever it looks like, how can God be the light and life of your holiday if he isn't already? Who will you give thanks to? If you're a visitor today, we want to welcome you. If this is the first time you've heard about Jesus being life, being light, then we hope you stick around to hear more. And if anyone here is tired of walking in the darkness, tired of the sin in their lives, the decisions they made that have led up to this point, then we're going to invite you. We, we want you, God wants you to let Jesus be your light, even if that means shining on some of the darkness in your life. If you need prayers, there are going to be elders around this auditorium who will be more than happy to pray with you. If you need healing, let us help. And if you need the grace that only God can give, if you want to learn how to walk in the light of Christ, then we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing.